We'll never know how much we owe to people like Audie Murphy and Nick Bacon and other men and women that have sacrificed more than we can even know or understand. And of course, not just them, but parents and grandparents that came through World War II, went through the Depression, sent their kids off. A lot of men that fought in World War I sent their kids off to World War II. A lot of men that fought as young men in World War I went and fought again in World War II. And I've met uh, very few that fought not only in World War I, World War II, and Korea, but Vietnam. So there are a lot of people that have paid a very heavy price so that we could be here today. And of course, we're throwing away the treasure that they fought for. We're throwing away the heritage that we have. And now our military is more concerned about using the right pronouns than they are about fighting and winning wars. But that's the world, unfortunately, that we live in. We're gonna resume our study in 2 Peter. <clears throat> I wanna just refresh our memory by going back to our key verse. You know, pretty much in any of the books that we study, we can find a verse or a couple of verses that sort of summarize what that book is all about. And I've always found it very helpful to be able to find those passages. And before we get into it and before we pray, I just want to once again thank this church for your wonderful hospitality to us. I uh, just appreciate so much all that you've done. Uh, just to welcome us, I'm so thankful for Mike and Helen, uh, not only for their friendship and fellowship through the years, but inviting us to come here and be able to share this time with you. And uh, just uh, thank you for your pastor and his wonderful dedication to teaching you the word and being faithful in a time when unfaithfulness is the norm. And I'm saying that not only above uh, concerning the world around us, I'm saying it about churches. Unfaithfulness is now the norm in our churches. And it's tragic and it's frightening. But by the grace of God, you have a lighthouse here uh, on a very dangerous shore of the sea of corruption that is around us. So let that light shine very brightly. Let's pray and then I'll read our text and we'll get into the third chapter. <clears throat> Father, as we come before the throne of your grace, we have enjoyed one another's company and wonderful fellowship as we've gathered around your word and we've looked at this marvelous little book. So much is packed into three chapters that we've only been able to scratch the surface. But Father, as we conclude our time together today, it is my prayer that God the Holy Spirit will enrich us even further, teach us even more, open our eyes to things we may not have seen before, confirm us in the truths that we know, build spiritual muscle in our souls, and equip us for the time in which we live. We recognize that we live in those perilous times which Paul spoke of. We understand that Many have been led away by doctrines of demons. Many have chosen to find churches and pastors that will tickle their ears 
And yet, Father, we are here attempting in every way with every ounce of our mental, physical, and spiritual strength to digest the truths of your word. So bless our time together. Let it be rich and use the time to provide us with gems from your treasury that will carry us into eternity. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. If you would just go with me back to 2 Peter chapter 1, and you'll remember that the theme that we're following is the Christian warrior in three areas, his calling, which is chapter one, his combat, which is chapter two, and his coronation, which is chapter three. We have all of those in a very succinct statement here, beginning in verse 10. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. It's very important that we define, if, if it's so important for Peter to say, be all the more diligent to make your call and election sure, then it's very important for us to define what is that call and that election. And we looked at uh, the whole idea of election. We looked at Isaiah chapter 42. We looked at Jesus' own definition in Matthew 22. Uh, we noted that Paul tells us in Ephesians 1.3 that we are elect only because we are in Christ, the elect one. But just to very simply and briefly clarify what is our calling and election, there are three things involved. Number one, we are called to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That call, that invitation goes out to every member of the human race. As the gospel goes out, as it spread through the airwaves, as it goes out through pastors, preachers, evangelists, missionaries around the world, the call to the world is believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. That's the first step, a call to the gospel. And then secondly, there's a call to spiritual growth. And he dealt with that in verses five through nine, when he told us that we should be very diligent to add to our faith. In other words, we've come to faith in Jesus Christ. Now what do we do with it? Well, we build on it. It's a foundation. In 1 Corinthians 3.11, Paul tells us, other foundation can no man lay than that which God has laid, which is Christ. And once we believe we have that foundation, now the question is, what will we build on it? And we want to build on it solid, faithful, true spiritual growth. So add to your faith virtue. That is the power of God through the indwelling and the filling of the Holy Spirit. Add to your faith virtue and to your virtue knowledge. In other words, get into the word of God, study the word of God, absorb the word of God, digest it so that you can use it in your life. And to your knowledge, you add self-control. Self-control means that what I learn, I am now daily making an effort to apply in my life. We don't do it perfectly. We don't do it all the time. But little by little, as we're growing, we're taking in the word and we're applying it. We apply it in three areas. What we think, what we say, and what we do. Self-control. 
to your self-control, you add perseverance. Why? Because you have to keep on keeping on. It's not a one-month course. It's not a six-month course. It's not a five-year course. It's a lifetime pursuit of continually growing in grace and truth. So perseverance means that we keep on keeping on. If we continue in that perseverance, we're going to attain little by little, more and more, a level of godliness. And I mentioned that godliness is never used of God, but it is used of Christ. What is godliness? How can we define it? Paul defines it for us in 1 Timothy 3.16. Great is the mystery of godliness, he says. Christ was manifested in the flesh. So how can you and I reflect godliness? We're going to reflect the life of Christ. In other words, as Paul tells us in Romans 8, we are going to be conformed to his image. Or as he says in Romans chapter 12, in verse 1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what is the good and perfect and acceptable will of God. So it's that growing likeness of Christ. Paul said, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And so there's that sense of observing him like a little child looks to his father, like a little girl looks to her mother, how they stand, how they walk, how they talk, the gestures that they use, and little children love to imitate their parents. We look to the Lord Jesus Christ through the word and we learn to imitate him. In that godliness, we're going to see that there is a growing love of our fellow believers. You know, it's very easy to go into a church and find all the faults in a church. Churches are like people. There are no perfect people. There are no perfect churches. And I hear people all the time saying, well, I don't go to church because and you've all heard this one. Everybody in church is a hypocrite. Well, everybody in the world is a hypocrite. We all try to present ourselves as being more than we are or something that we're not. The fact that you're a hypocrite means you need to be in church, right? So that excuse just falls flat. And then the excuse, well, there are people there that I saw doing this, or there are people there that believe this, or we can come up with all kinds of excuses when the real issue is, is the word being taught. If the word is being taught, all of the faults that you can find with the people in that church show all the more reason why they should be there. Because they're there hearing God's word being taught faithfully and truthfully from the pulpit and it's going to ultimately affect their lives. So we learn to love the brethren instead of finding fault with the brethren because we begin to realize, it's, as I mentioned in an old AA meeting, hi, my name's Gene, I'm a sinner and I'm a failure. Hi, Gene, you know, I mean, that's just the truth. That's just the way it is. And once we can accept ourselves as we are and realize that that is why we're here, and we're here not to criticize, not to find fault, not to tear each other down. We're here to try to build each other up. 
The love of the brethren is a wonderful, wonderful thing. Nan and I have found a marvelous church in Prescott Valley, Living Truth Church. We have a pastor who is a dedicated man of the word. He's not only dedicated to teaching the word, he's dedicated to living it. And the one thing that we have found in that church that we really see in very few, and I have to tell you that uh, you have something very special and very wonderful here because we have felt nothing but love from the people here, acceptance and support from the people here. So many people have come up and thanked me and told me that they've gotten something out of the classes. And believe it or not, that's a rare thing. It is a rare thing to find a loving church. And we have uh, found one and are so happy. Well, I got to move on or I'll never get to chapter three. <laughs> Brotherly love leads us to the ability to love others. So first call, come to faith in Jesus Christ. Second call, grow up in your faith. And then the third call is what? To service. Make your calling and election sure. You've come to Christ. You've grown to a level of spiritual maturity, whatever that level may be. Now turn that in to some kind of service. So let's make our calling and election sure, because he says, if we do these things, we will never stumble. Well, the stumbling brings us into the combat phase of the Christian, and that's chapter two, where we deal with the problem of false teaching. Believe it or not, if the truth is the solution to everything in our Christian life, false teaching is the essence of every problem that we're going to face. Everything that we think wrong, everything that we say wrong, everything that we do wrong is a result of bad thinking. And bad thinking comes from bad input. You know, we're to a degree like computers. What you put into a computer is what is going, it's going to spit out, right? And so as we rub shoulders with people around us and we struggle with the uh, corruption and the, and the sin and the just degeneracy of the world around us and we're bombarded from the television set, from the computer, from the telephone. We're bombarded with all of these false ideas and all of these false ideas, believe it or not, have their root in some error that relates to scripture. And I think we're all seeing this more and more as we're being propagandized by our own government. We are now not so much looking for false teaching coming from the cults, coming from those who are a, a part of a false religion. We, the, the very things that the cults and the false religions used to try to foist on us now is bombarding us every day in our media. So this is the real battle. The battleground is here. I love uh, I know Mike and Helen know Gary Horton, maybe some of the others do, but Gary Horton always said, do you know why Jesus was crucified on Calvary? Calvary is Golgotha. Golgotha means the skull. And he said that it was uh, an illustration of the fact that the greatest battles of life are always right here. The greatest battles are in the mind. And so... If you do these things, if you come to Christ, if you grow in grace, if you get involved in service, you'll never stumble. It doesn't mean that there will be no fault in your life. It doesn't mean you're going to have sinless perfection. It means nothing is going to be able to keep you down. The idea of stumbling here is the idea of a person who is in a race and falls and never finishes the race. 
That's not going to happen to the believer who is dedicated to growing in grace and truth. And then we come to the third aspect of it. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly. The word abundantly is above and beyond super rich into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and the Savior, Jesus Christ. And that leads us to the coronation of the Christian. In other words, the crowning of the Christian. And that's where we enter into our third chapter. I would just mention to you on chapter 16, I think I have seven points on eternal security. We don't have time to go through those, but I would encourage you to read them. One of the first attacks Satan makes on the Christian is convincing them they can lose their salvation. When you come to Jesus Christ in simple childlike faith, your security forever depends on his faithfulness, not yours. You will fail. And don't try to put it on a sliding scale. Well, I may have failed, but not as bad as Job. Or I may have done this, but it wasn't as bad as what someone else did. I've worked in a lot of prisons, and I can tell you every prisoner I've ever talked to admitted what they had done, whether it was rape, whether it was child abuse, whether it was murder. They would admit that they had done it, but all of them had in their mind that they weren't as bad as some other criminal that did something else. We can all use that excuse. God's scale is not from white sins to black sins. On God's scale, every sin is a black sin. And as Paul makes clear to us in the book of Galatians, if you break one law, you're guilty of breaking them all. So, you know, if you want to look at someone and look down on them, all you're doing is really bringing yourself down to their level. So eternal security is so important for us to understand because it is Christ's faithfulness that keeps us secure. I end on the seventh point with his statement in John chapter 10. No one can take anyone who comes to me in faith out of my hand. My father is greater than I, and he is going to hold them in his hand. And when you're held by the mighty hand, the omnipotent hand of Jesus Christ and the almighty hand of God the Father, you are secure. Remember this, when Christ died on the cross, when he proclaimed his victory in John 19.30, and he said, it is finished, the it refers to the issue of sin. The issue of sin is finished. And the word that he used for finished was a word that was written across a bill once the bill had been paid, or it was written across the sentence of a criminal once his sentence had been paid, and it meant paid in full. It is finished. The sin issue was finished at the cross. He died for my sins in the past. He died for my sins in the future. He died for the sins of the present and the whole bill was paid. So we're secure in him and praise God and thank God for that. As we get into chapter three and we look at the coronation of the Christian, I want to give you a little bit of a correction on the divisions. I noticed as I was going back through it this morning that I kind of uh, mess that up a little bit. All that does is show you that I'm still a sinner. Um, so the divisions go like this, and you might want to correct them. There are three divisions in the chapter. Learning from the past. That's verses one through six. Learning from the past. And then we have looking to the future. 
looking to the future. I think that uh, heading is at the bottom of page 18, and I think I've got uh, verse 7 to uh, 13 there, and it should read 7 to 10, looking to the future. And then we're going to live, have living steadfastly in the present. That's at the bottom of page 19. That should be verse 11 to 18. So learning from the past, looking to the future, verse 7 to 10, and then living steadfastly in the present. That's where we get to the real meat uh, of the text. But we're going to have to cover a lot before we get there. So here we are, verses 1 to 6. Read with me, beloved. By the way, remember, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, when Peter writes, beloved, it is not him saying it. It's God the Father. It's God the Son through the Holy Spirit speaking to you as beloved. That is a term that is used of a young man with regard to his beloved. That is a term of tremendous affection and endearment. Uh, I had the opportunity, you know, sometimes when people go to Israel, they like to get baptized again. Uh, we don't believe in uh, being rebaptized for the same purpose, but just because we happen to be at the Sea of Galilee or we happen to be at the River Jordan, people want to do it again as a kind of like you do a, a recommitment of your marriage vows. You know, some of you may have done that, and Ann and I did it at one point. And so it's kind of a, a recommitment. And I had the opportunity to baptize my wife, who I led to Christ, and by the way, who is my best disciple that I have ever taught, the greatest example. If you want to see what I know, don't look at me, look at her. She reflects it much better than I do. And as I had the opportunity to baptize her, I said, I now baptize my beloved in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You know, when you've been married, how many, about 45 years at that point, and you can still say that, and not only still say it, but mean it more than you ever did in the beginning, she started crying. So she got baptized in her own tears and in the Sea of Galilee too. Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which, in other words, first and second Peter, I stir up your pure minds by way of a reminder. Do you remember that Peter likes to remind you that he wants to remind you? Uh, we talked about that back in chapter 1, verses 13, 14, and 15, where three times he talks about reminding us. Why does he do that? Because repetition is the key to learning. I write you this second epistle that I may stir up your pure minds by way of reminder so that you will be mindful. Why is he reminding us? So that we remember. Of the words that were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and the Savior. Peter wants us to look back to the past, look back to the words of the prophets, but remember that they are being confirmed by the apostles. In this statement, he puts the words of the apostles, in other words, the writings of New Testament scripture, on the same level as Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, all of the Old Testament prophets. Knowing this verse, verse 3, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts. Now, 
We're shifting a little bit from chapter two where the problem was the false teachers that insinuate themselves or infiltrate into the church. And now we're dealing with people out there in society. So we've gone outside the church now. The combat zone of faithful and true doctrine is now going out into the combat zone of culture, society, intellectualism, the universities, the media, whatever you want to do. Scoffers are going to come, and you and I are surrounded by scoffers today. They will come in the last days, walking according to their own lust. There's a reason people deny the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because they know, even though they reject the gospel, that his coming would mean judgment. His coming is doomed for them. And therefore, walking according to their own lust, they mock and laugh and scoff at the idea that Christ is coming again. And saying in verse 4, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. In other words, their scientific philosophical position is we live in a closed system. We live in a stable universe. Now, it's very interesting because the same people that will tell you this, that we live in a stable, unchanging universe are the ones who will tell you that we're going through global warming and, and our, our exhaust from our vehicles is making the planet hotter. Anybody feel like the planet's hotter this winter? We've had one of the record winters all across the United States. I don't know if you remember those of you that are as old as I am back in the 19th, late 60s and early 70s, they were telling us we were on the verge of an ice age. And I got all excited. Here I am, a young high school kid, and I'm infatuated with wild stuff, Africa, and, and you know, the tribal people around the world and now they're telling me an ice age is coming and I'm thinking man maybe the mammoths the mastodons the saber-toothed tigers are going to come back this is going to be great I thought by the time I was this old I would be living in some primeval polar lifestyle situation well to my disappointment not only were they wrong about the fact that we're moving into another ice age, now they're telling us that it's getting too hot. And what they don't tell you is the best thing for the world to feed the population that we have would be for the climate to get warmer so that we had longer growing seasons and more growing seasons around the world and we could produce more food. Oh, well. <laughs> We live, they say, in a stable world. And you know what? They're right to a degree. They're right in the sense that God has established natural laws that rule this world and this universe. And those natural laws hold true because they're sustained by the word of God. The word of God holds the world in place. The word of God circles us around the sun, unless you're a flat earther. And then, of course, the sun is spinning around as a disk up over the top of us. I know some people that are in that uh, frame of mind, uh, so I'll accommodate them. God has set the world on foundations. The Old Testament tells us this. But what does it mean by foundations? It's not talking about some bricks and stones that he laid down. It's talking about the things we call natural law. 
But here's what they forget. They forget that the one who established this world so that it is stable and firm is the same one who can enter in and change his own natural laws at any time. And therefore, Peter says, for this, they willingly forget that by the word of God, the heavens were of old. The heavens didn't used to be there. What are we told in, in the book of Genesis? Genesis chapter one, verse one. Bereshith barai Elohim, Hashemayim huet haaretz. What is it saying? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, what does that tell us? Before God created it, they weren't there. <clears throat> they willfully forget. Notice that this is a voluntary hardening of their own heart. They refuse to believe the scripture. And this can be a problem for all of us because, you know, we... When we cease to have an open mind, when we cease to be willing to listen to Scripture, not human philosophy, not some philosophical position, not some preconceived religious idea, what does the Scripture say? And if we hold a position, whether it's philosophical, whether it's culture, cultural, whether it is doctrinal, that violates the plain and clear statements of Scripture, you know what we have done? We have just stopped our spiritual growth. We cannot grow beyond that point. And that's why it's very, very dangerous for us as we read commentaries, as we listen to arguments, Let's open our mind and let's give it a hearing and always bring it back under the microscope of the Word of God so that we can examine it under what says the Scripture. Different places around the world that we've gone, they call me, Doctor, what does the Bible say? Because they'll ask me questions. And when they ask me questions, I'll say, what does the Bible say? And we'll go back into the Scripture and see what the Scripture says. Because what I have to say is not the important thing. So here they are scoffing. And here is Peter saying, they have hardened their heart. They have closed their ears. They have shut their eyes to the fact that the word of God brought the heavens of old and the earth standing out of water and in water. You remember in the beginning, the spirit was hovering over the waters. The word literally means to brood as a hen broods over her eggs. So the Spirit of God is brooding over the water, and a lot of people believe that the water was actually ice at that point, but it says it was brooding over the waters. There's nothing but water. Imagine a world of water. And then God said, let dry, dry land appear, and what happened? The dry land came up from the water. And as it came up from the water, like a mountain rising up out of a lake, it separated the water from the water. And this is what Peter's talking about. <clears throat> the world that then existed, he said, perished being flooded with water. The very world that God brought out of the water was then flooded with water. We've dealt with that in chapter two with the flood. But here's the key, verse seven, the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, that's why it's stable. That's why we can count on the sun coming up tomorrow. That's why we know that there's going to be a changing of the seasons. As Pastor Novice talked about yesterday, every change of the seasons, every budding of a tree, every flowering of a plant is evidence of the existence of a creator. 
And his word holds all of this in place. But when he chose to flood it all with water, all of that perished. All of it ended. We don't really even know what the world was like before the flood. Now the world is being preserved. Preserved why? It's being held in place. It's being sustained. It's going to be being stabilized by God. By the same word, every day his word, as Hebrews 1 and verse 3 tells us, his word, word holds the universe in place. For what purpose? Until the day of judgment and the perdition of ungodly men. So Peter tells us we need to learn from the past. And he tells us that this world is heading for judgment. I just want you to notice, I won't dwell on it, in ver on page 18, the doctrine of the seven terminal generations. A lot of people have never looked at this, but there are seven generations in the Bible that were told in advance that they are going to be the last generation. The first of those is the flood generation. When Noah went out, and generation is not always the same length of time, in Noah's day it was 120 years, and for 120 years, as 1 Peter 3 tells us, Noah was out there preaching to people and saying the world is going to end in a flood. They were a terminal generation, and they were warned that they were a terminal gener generation because God is faithful. And yet they refused to listen. They laughed at him. They mocked him just like people mock today. The Exodus generation was a terminal generation because 400 years before, actually 430 to be precise, before the Exodus, God had told Abraham, your descendants are going to go down into Egypt and they're going to be slaves and they're going to be slaves down there for 400 years. And at the end of that generation, I am going to bring them out. It was a terminal generation, particularly terminal for the Egyptians. And then in the time of the exile, third, Jeremiah told them that they would be in exile for 70 years in Jeremiah 7, Jeremiah 25, Jeremiah 29. And of course, Daniel in Daniel chapter 9 picked up his scrolls and began reading the book of Jeremiah and saw that Jeremiah had told them that they would be in captivity for 70 years. So guess what he knew? It's about time for us to go back. I don't think Daniel ever went back, but the exile generation went back into the land and rebuilt the temple. And you remember, of course, all of the stories about the return of the exile and so forth. They knew the time. What about the birth of the Messiah? Fourth, the prophet Daniel gave the time precisely in Daniel 9, 24 to 27, from the going forth of the command to rebuild Jerusalem. It happened in 445 B.C. under Artaxerxes until the coming of Messiah the Prince would be 69 weeks. 69 weeks of years. And remember that their years are not 365 days like ours. They're 360 days because they went by the lunar instead of the solar calendar. So if you try to figure it all out mathematically, uh, it'll give you some real headaches. But what do we know? When Jesus rebuked the Pharisees in Luke 19, 44, what did he say to them? This is coming on you because you did not know the day of your visitation. You should have known the time. 
When Joseph and Mary walked into the temple with the baby Jesus and Simeon looked and knew under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, here is the Messiah. Why was he looking? Why was he praying that he would not die until he saw the Lord's Messiah? Because he knew he was in that generation, the generation of the coming of the Son of God. And then we have the 70 AD generation. Jesus clearly told the people that what would happen to Jerusalem and to the temple, not one stone would be standing on another, would happen to this generation. Forty years later, after his crucifixion, the Romans came down under Titus the Roman and his words were fulfilled. They had 40 years in order to understand from his word what was going to happen, and yet they blindly went forward into the most awful devastation that the nation of Israel, actually the worst devastation the world had ever seen up to that time. A nation ceased to exist in a few moments of time. Millions were slaughtered. Millions were sold on the slave blocks of the world and people went blindly into it because they didn't listen to the word of God. And then we have the rapture generation because if we're right in understanding the fig tree parable that Jesus speaks of in Matthew 24, 32 to 34, and if that fig tree represents Israel, which I believe it does since Israel is illustrated as a fig tree in the Old Testament. When you see the fig tree begin to blossom, then know that the end is near. Truly, this generation, Jesus only said that twice. He said it once of the, of the 70 AD generation, and he said it once of the second coming generation. He said this generation will not pass until all these things are fulfilled. We're in that generation, my friends. We're living in that time. And we need to understand that the last day scenarios that are pointed out to us in scripture, uh, and I've had, I've had some pretty brilliant guys, you know, I'm just common as dirt, but I've mixed shoulders with some pretty brilliant people, and they've told me that I'm all mixed up on this, and I've said to them, then interpret to me the parable of the fig tree. They said, well, we don't really know what it means. Well, that's your bad luck. Jesus said it for a reason, and he tied it to this generation. And if it doesn't mean anything, then cut it out of our Bibles, but if it means what it says, we're there. The rapture, I believe, will come in this generation. And not just the rapture, this generation includes even more because as you see in your seventh point there, it includes a seven-year tribulation followed by the second coming of Jesus Christ. The same logic is in verse six, uh, or in point six applies since only seven years separates the rapture of the church from the second coming of Jesus Christ. My friends, God doesn't send us blindly into the future. God does not send his people blindly into a world that cannot be figured out, cannot be understood, or into a time when it's impossible to have a biblical framework to evaluate the time in which we live. He always speaks in advance. Why? Because his grace always precedes judgment. And his grace right now is preceding the judgment that is about to fall on our country. I read, you know, things that I've 
anticipated and predicted, not because I'm predicting, but just based on scripture, things that I've anticipated for years, things that I was teaching back in the 1990s are now everyday news. I get calls from people all the time that were in Harlem Park Bible Church and they said, you told us this would happen. We thought you were crazy and it's happening. But now we're hearing it not Bible class, we're hearing it on the daily news. We're there. So we need to understand that we look back and we see, yes, God established the world on a foundation. Yes, he has natural laws by which it runs, but he can violate those laws, change those laws at any time according to his will. He did it in the time of the flood. He's about to do it in the time in which you and I live. And we are on the brink, on the threshold of the tribulation period, which will be the most awful, horrendous, bloody Destructive time that the world has ever known. You say, well, what do we do then? Well, we need to live today. We look at the past. We look at the future. We tie our tightrope, if you will, to both. We stand in the middle and we know where we are in the plan of God. And that brings us to looking forward to the future. I'm going to touch on it and then I'm going to close and uh, we'll finish it up. Notice as he moves on in verse 7 to 10, the heavens and the earth are now preserved by the same word for fire, not water, until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord a day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as a day. This comes from Psalm 90 and verse four. But I want you to remember this, when Jesus left his disciples and he said, I am going to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I will come again and I will receive you to myself. Notice very carefully, he doesn't say I'm coming to you. He says, you're coming to me, preview of the rapture. So that where I am, there you may be. How long ago did he say that? Two days. It's just been two days ago. Let's get God's perspective of history in our mind. A thousand years is a day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promises. Some count slackness, but is long suffering to us. Listen, he is delaying for your sake. He's delaying for my sake. Why? Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You say, I've already come to repentance. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Come and get me out of this madhouse. Well, that's great for you. But what about your father, your mother, your children, your grandchildren, your neighbor? God is long-suffering, not willing that any perish. And therefore, you and I have a reason for being here today. And there is a reason that Christ has not come, and it's a good reason. And there's a reason that as the world goes mad and as we're like on a runaway train that just keeps accelerating toward disaster, we are here with a purpose and a reason. And it's to express the long suffering and the loving kindness of God to the people who are around us. How can we do that? I'm glad you asked because I'm going to deal with that in our next session. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your grace. Thank you again for this marvelous group, this wonderful church. Thank you for the love of Christ that we share. Thank you for his sacrifice 
on our behalf. But Lord, let us not live apathetically. Let us not live indifferently. We are here for a purpose. You're sustaining the world for a purpose. And as we look around and we see things collapsing and we see things unraveling all around us, let us not be distracted. That has nothing to do with us. We are on a firm foundation of faith in Christ and we are here, each and every one of us, to be a spokesman to someone of the love of God and the sacrifice of Christ on their behalf. Let us adopt, as Pastor Novice was telling us yesterday, that wonderful, marvelous, victorious mindset of the Apostle Paul. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Let us therefore live our lives purposely during the time that we have on this earth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.